Don't touch that dial. You've tuned in to The Great TV Podcast with Jim Harold. Whether they're current or classic, let's talk about the best shows ever made. Well, we do have a very special guest today, and we're going to talk about, well, one of my all-time favorites, and I'm sure the same for you, uh, Star Trek, the original series, uh, a great program in the 1960s. Many of us, like me, were introduced to, to it in reruns for me. It was in the 1970s when I was a little kid, and uh, gee, it just goes on and on with all its various iterations, and all from the mind of Gene Roddenberry, the creator. And we're going to talk to a great guest about Gene Roddenberry and about the various phases of Star Trek. I'm talking about Mark Cushman. He's come out with a great series of books, These Are the Voyages. And the most recent, as I understand it, is These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s. And I, I venture to say perhaps Mark knows more about this subject than anybody. And we're so glad to have him on the show. Mark Cushman, welcome to the Great TV Podcast. Hi, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start at the the beginning, if you don't mind, because I think a lot of people assume maybe that the this you know I, I believe if I'm correct the original series only lasted about three seasons on NBC and You're right. I, I think it blows people's mind that it wasn't on for 10 years or something like that why well I guess maybe maybe talk to us a little bit about how the concept for the series started and why only three years Sure, sure. Well, it feels like it's been on for 50 years because it has, but only three years on NBC. And uh, But keep in mind, back then, they made a lot more episodes per season. So there's 80 episodes of the original Star Trek, if you count the pilot. And uh, and now, these days, my God, a season is what, 12 episodes or something? Yeah. Back then, it was, it was uh, about 30, you know, 26 to 30 episodes, depending on uh, how the network felt about it. So in three years, you could accumulate quite a few episodes. Uh, the reason it didn't stay on longer, so we'll start with that, and then we'll go back to the beginning, the conception, uh, is uh, the, the folklore that's been around for 50 years is that the ratings were bad, that it was a failure on NBC. And this isn't true. Uh, we found out because my publisher licensed all the A.C. Nielsen reports for every single episode of Star Trek. And not just for the episodes, but for that entire night's worth of programming on NBC and the other networks. And the very first episode of Star Trek had a 47% audience share. <laughs> uh, Lucille Ball, who owned Desilu, sent a letter to Gene Roddenberry saying, Gene and, your, and everybody, congratulations, looks like we have a hit. And uh, during that first year, it had stiff competition. It was up against Bewitched, which was a ABC's top-rated show out of everything they had. And over on CBS, you had the um, uh, My Three Sons, followed by the CBS Thursday Night Movie. Wow. So it wasn't easy competition. Now, Star Trek didn't win its slot every week, but about uh, almost one-third, at least one-quarter of the time, uh, it was the winner in its time period against Bewitched, against My Three Sons, against the movie. And uh, when it didn't win, it was usually a close second. Uh, uh, it and Bewitched would only be separated by a point or two. Uh, 
And my three sons usually came in third, but it was still doing good. It was pulling in a 30 share and Star Trek was pulling in about a 31% share or 32. Uh, Bewitched would usually get about a 33, 34. And that's how it was divided up. But it would switch depending on, on uh, what the movie was that night, and what Bewitched had going. Cause you know, we always saw previews and sometimes you'd see a preview and go, okay, I got to see this. Even yeah, if it wasn't yeah. one of your regular shows. Now, one so thing it did, when, it did when, well. And what, I'm sorry, when, what, when they moved it to Fridays, the ratings came came down a little bit uh and when they moved it to 10 p.m on fridays they came down but it was still nbc's top rated thursday uh, friday night show and so the reason they canceled it had more to do about politics and the type of stories that were being told not the ratings may i, may I make this point um i don't think people get it these days now i grew up uh when there were still three networks and we had maybe two independents in our market when i was a little kid a, mm-hmm. The lowest rated show of one of the, at that time, three major networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, would be a smash hit in terms of the amount of share and so forth if it were on television today. The, the, the worst show that got the worst ratings would be a smash hit because the pie was so much less divided. Yes. Very, very true. I, I mean, the bottom rated shows were probably pulling in about a 10, 11% audience share, which is about what the top rated shows get these days because there's so many channels now. So you had, you had three networks and you had two or three affiliates in most big cities. So you had maybe six channels going for that piece of the pie. And, and the, uh, the, the theory back then, the way the networks looked at it is, is if you were winning your time slot, you got renewed. If you were getting a 30 plus share, you got renewed. Well, Star Trek quite often won its time slot. And quite often, uh, in that first season in particular, got a 30 plus share. So the fact that NBC tried to cancel it after its first year, and then tried again after its second, and then put it in the death slot, Fridays from 10 to 11, the worst time slot ever. And it still won its audience. It still won its time slot when that season opened. Uh, it shows you that the ratings weren't as bad as we've been led to believe. It had to do with uh, the relationship between Gene Roddenberry, NBC, the type of stories he was telling, which were taboo for that time on television. Well, I think it's interesting because I think of a show, uh, a precursor like The Twilight Zone with Rod Serling. Mm-hmm. Who Serling had been, you know, kind of the wonderkind uh, 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 of television writing and did all these heavy, heavy shows with heavy, heavy themes, Playhouse 90 and all of that. And then mm-hmm. he decided, to, as I understand it, to go to The Twilight Zone and he would still write about these issues, but it would be kind of cloaked in a parable. And it seems like right. Rod and Barry kind of took that that mantle because uh, what, what did the Twilight Zone run until 62, 63, somewhere in there? And then uh, Star Trek picks up around 66. So Roddenberry kind of took that mantle and did more of the same except in, in kind of a space drama. That's right. Well, he and Rod Serling actually both took it from Jonathan Swift. And if people remember <laughs> Jonathan Swift and Gulliver's Travels, you know, he wrote that back in a time in England. Uh, where if you wrote something the king didn't approve of or the queen, they would they say you're a writer. Which hand do you use to write with? And they would chop it off. And uh, so Gulliver's Travels is filled with political messages and and social messages that had to do with England of that era. But the only way he could write about it was to invent this other place, and he could do it there. Well, Rod Serling did that, and Gene Roddenberry did it more than any of them. Uh, because on Star Trek, he could talk about Vietnam, he could talk about racism, sexism, God, uh, you name it, just by going to another planet 
and they were having a war like Vietnam. And uh, so that that's how he got away with it. But there were fights in this book series that I've done. Uh, Gene, uh, I started these, actually started researching them way back when I was working for Next Generation. And Gene gave me uh, all the, uh, gave me access to all the show files, tens of thousands of documents, memos on every episode, production notices, everything, budgets, you, you name it. And Bob Justman, his co-producer, gave me a lot of stuff. And Dorothy Fontana, the script editor, and John D.F. Black, the associate producer, they all made contributions for this book series, as well as giving me interviews. And uh, you go through all these things, and you see all the arguments between NBC and Gene Roddenberry almost weekly over whatever that next episode's going to be, because NBC was catching on to what he was doing, and they didn't approve. Now, uh, the one thing that fascinates me, and I want to get into after the cancellation, and, and I think that's where the Gene Roddenberry in, in this story picks up in the 70s for your latest volume, but uh, I, I'm really curious because Gene Roddenberry created uh, has created a universe. He's created a yes. world, and, and it's a world that has gone from the original series to the motion pictures to the next generation, and on and on it goes uh, uh, today till we see the, the newer iterations of it. Did he have any inkling that he he created a world and created characters and a story that people would would come to care about uh, 50 years on 60 uh, and, and it's going to probably be a hundred years on. Did, did he have any inkling of this? He did. Uh, there were times when he lost his confidence and started to not believe as we all do in life. We can all, all be on a mission and, and then suddenly something starts going wrong and you think, Maybe I was wrong about this. Uh, he believed in it, and that's why he and Bob Justman, his right-hand man, and Gene Kuhn as well, they, they saved all their memos. And they, and they just did so many memos on every draft of every script, every production. So by going through these memos, you see the conversations on every episode. And the reason they, they did that is because, they, uh, first of all, it was just the way they wanted to do it. They wanted to be real clear about everything they were talking about with each other and have it written down. But the other reason was because they knew they were doing something special, something that had never been done. And whether they, I think all of them would be surprised now. I know Dorothy Fontana is because I, I, that it's gone as long as it has and become what it has become. But they knew they were doing something extremely special. They just didn't know if it was going to get the audience that it needed to uh, stay on. And they just certainly, after three seasons, you couldn't predict that it would still be getting rerun 50 years later uh, and grow into and have all these children, in a sense. I mean, Star Trek's going to outlive all of us. So, no, they didn't know that. They couldn't have known that. But they did feel that they were doing something very, very important, and they hoped and believed that it was going to have a major impact. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the casting. Now, if I remember correctly, there was a pilot with a different, uh, I believe it was Captain Pike, I'm not sure. Uh, it was the, 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 the original captain, and then they did another version. Uh, they started the show with Shatner. Can you talk to us about the casting, the decisions? Sure. How did they know that... Shatner eventually was the right guy. Nimoy was the right guy. Nicole Nichols, uh, James Doohan, uh, George Dekai. I, I mean, they seem like such perfect decisions now, but I'm guessing it, it didn't. Uh, but at the time, maybe it didn't. You know, what did, well, talked about the casting. It's kind of like the Beatles. You know, you can't imagine the Beatles without any one of those four. 
if you take out Paul McCartney or take out John Lennon, it wouldn't have been the Beatles. The same thing with Star Trek, uh, not just with the cast, but with those vital people behind the scenes, Gene and Gene Kuhn, Bob Justman, Dorothy Fontana. I mean, it was just one of those magical events where fate kind of puts the right people together. Uh, Gene Roddenberry knew that he wanted William Shatner from the get-go. That, William Shatner was his first choice. But Shatner, and Shatner was big on TV at that time. He was a top guest star. He'd been offered uh, a couple different series, including The Defenders, which went for many, many years, which he turned down. Uh, but he wasn't available because he had just accepted a series called For the People, where he played a district attorney. And so since he wasn't available, they started going to the second choice and the third choice down the line. Believe it or not, Gene offered it then to Lloyd Bridges, who had just wrapped wow. up Sea Hunt. Can you imagine him? Yeah. Can't imagine Lloyd Bridges in a command chair as Captain Kirk or Captain Pike in that first pilot. So Gene got Jeffrey Hunter, who was a pretty big uh, name. I mean, he was a movie star. Yep. He had just started doing television, had a, had a series called Temple Houston, uh, which only lasted one year because of bad time slot and some other problems. But uh, he was considered very bankable. And so they got him to play Captain Christopher Pike. And uh, they did The Cage, which was the first pilot, uh, the most expensive pilot ever made up to that time. And NBC rejected it because they felt it was too cerebral. They wanted Star Trek to be more action-adventure. So they did what had never happened before. They ordered a second pilot. And remarkably, Lucille Ball and Desilu Studios put up the money, half of the money, to do the second pilot. The first one had been so expensive. The second one was a little less expensive because the sets were built and so forth. Well, Jeffrey Hunter uh, had a contract, like all actors do, that you do a pilot, and if it sells, you're under contract for about five years. And that's why it was the five-year mission, by the way. Uh, <laughs> they were hoping for five seasons. And... Um, uh, he, his wife talked him out of coming back and doing it. He got a movie offer. Uh, his wife wasn't a big fan of science fiction and she just felt it wasn't a good career move for him. So it was kind of a, an option to get out. Uh, since NBC was asking for a second pilot that gave him an escape clause. So he dropped out and, uh, the next person they went to was Jack Lord. Oh man, and, Hawaii 5 Jack Lord said, uh, yeah, he said, I'll do it. And he was another big one. I mean, Bob Cope, Robert Cope. Jack Lord and William Shatner were probably the three actors in TV that all the networks kept offering series to. They all thought these guys can do a series. They're that strong. And uh, they offered it to Jack Lord. He said yes, but he wanted 25% ownership in the series. And Gene oh. said, no, 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 no. And Gene qu quipped to his uh, secretary, Dorothy Fontana, and he said, Jack takes his name a little too seriously. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> and went on well, to Jack, play Steve McGarrett. That was the right decision for him because yeah. then he did Hawaii 5 on that one for 12 seasons. Yeah, Steve McGarrett. But um, right at this moment, uh, they didn't know who they were going to get for the second pilot. And Gene opens up the trade magazines and for the people gets canceled after 13 weeks because it was put up against Bonanza. Oh boy. And so he called William Shatner and he said, come look at this pilot we made. We got to make another one. Shatner looked at it and said, I'm in, but I want to play the captain a little differently. I think he needs to be a little more dynamic, uh, a little more aggressive, ambitious. And I think he needs to be a little more flawed. And uh, Gene was all in favor of that. And so there comes the captain, 
Leonard Nimoy. He had guest starred in Gene's previous series, a series Gene created and produced called The Lieutenant that starred Gary Lockwood. And Leonard Nimoy was a guest star in that show. And so when Gene came up with the idea that he wanted this alien uh, with kind of a bony face, alien-type features, uh, very serious uh, and everything, uh, uh, Gary Lockwood suggested uh, Leonard Nimoy to him. He says, remember that guy that was in a guest star in one of our episodes, Lenny something? And Roddenberry looked at him and said, Nimoy. Nimoy, yeah. And uh, so that's uh, that's how he got in. So he was the first choice. Um, they did offer it to Martin Landau uh, be- only because uh, the network was pushing for a bigger name. And uh, Martin Landau was uh, another one of those people that everybody was trying to get into a series at that point and ended up going into Mission Impossible. And Martin Landau told me that he turned down the role because he felt it was too limiting as an actor. Where on Mission Impossible, he could play all these different disguises right. and all these different personalities. So uh, so Gene's first choice, uh, Leonard Nimoy, got the part because Martin Landau said no. Yeah, that's really interesting how these things uh, these things do work out. Um, another thing is the technology. You know, of course, now we're jaded by our iPhones and, and everything. But at the time, revolutionary in terms of the kind of technology that was being presented on screen or the the simulated technology let's say that's because gene ran all the scripts through through scientists he, he sent them over to the rand corporation he sent them to a company called DeForest research uh which was a real think tank and and uh, they would cover the scripts and give them notes on all these he even shared them with people at nasa and so every script, his, 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 his instructions to all these people, and some of them were on the payroll and some of them were just doing his favors, but his instructions were, I'm not asking that everything in Star Trek be plausible, but it, it has to be possible. And so they would look at these things and say, well, we don't think this is what's going to happen, but 200, 300 years from now, it could be. And so when he would hear that from the scientists, he would say, okay, let's do it. And so that's why it was a guy at the Rand Corporation that suggested the phaser. He said, it's laser in the script. He said, that's that's old school. We got laser now. It's got to be something else. And phaser actually stood for something, particle, something or other. I can't remember now. It's all in the books. But uh, it, it, it came from, from a scientist. And the, uh, the transporter, I mean, look what came out of that show, Jim. I mean, uh, the cell phone. Was basically yeah, the, the prototype for the cell phone was Kirk's communicator. <laughs> yes. uh, the prototype for the uh, the the um, PC and the internet was Spock's library computer system. Uh, the Bluetooth was always screwed into Spock's yeah. ear or Yahura's ear. Uh, we first saw CDs and DVDs on on the original Star Trek. Uh, uh, Kindle was first seen on the original Star Trek. Reading books on a screen, click click click, and uh, so all the MRI. You know, McCoy's scanner is doing what the MRI is now. So all this technology came from Star Trek. Now, they took some of it from other science fiction movies, but Star Trek is the thing that made it part of our culture. And that got all these kids who were watching it to grow up and say, we can do that. We can really have something like that. And they would invent it. Yeah, I, I remember years ago, this maybe a decade or more, Shatner did a show on one of the cable networks that basically talked about that, the technology of Star Trek and how it's developed today. Now, this again, this was probably like 2005 or something, and I thought that yes. was really neat. And I wondered, and I didn't know that about the scientists, because I wondered if it was 
uh, you know, three different possibilities. The, the one possibility they talked to science, a scientist and kind of extrapolated out. The other possibility being, as you say, kids see this and say, hey, I'm going to invent that in real life. Or third, something that's a little more esoteric, the idea that maybe the, the creators of Star Trek were tapping into some kind of collective consciousness and and foresaw uh, somewhat metaphysically what, what what was coming down the horizon. It's a combination of all those, because remember, they, they were getting a lot of their ideas from actual scientists who would read the scripts and say, hey, you know what this you could do in here? And so it's very possible that a lot of these things would have come about anyway. Well, of course, in time, all this stuff would have come about anyway. But the thing that really kicked it off was having it on TV every week. And for young, brilliant children watching this stuff who are going to grow up to become the, the Bill Gates and grow up to become these type of people, you know, they're seeing this stuff as kids. And, and then when they get into college and they're sitting there thinking, why can't we have something like this? And, and so that really kind of nudged it in the right direction. Another area where Star Trek really opened things up was interracial casting. Now it wasn't the first, the first was actually one year before I spy. Uh, which is another show I've written a book about because I'd like to write books about pioneering TV shows. And that was the first show to put a white and a black actor together on equal status. And the black actor, Bill Cosby, uh, was the first black actor to win an Emmy as a dramatic actor in television. And he won three in a row, three years in a row. Um, so this really opened up the doors. And the fact that the very next year, Star Trek comes on with an interracial cast, you know, in the bridge and so forth. And, and a woman, no, no less, the first woman astronaut, not only the first black astronaut, but the first woman astronaut in a way, if you think about it, Michelle Nichols, um, Yuhura. Uh, it really kind of changed the way people saw things. And within the next year or two, you started seeing all kinds of interracial casting on other TV shows, uh, Room 222. Julia, Mission Impossible had Greg Morris, and on and on and on, because uh, somebody had to be first. And it was the one-two punch of uh, I Spy and Star Trek, which, curiously enough, were sister shows. They were both filmed at Desilu in adjoining sound stages. They were both on at the same time. I Spy got started one year earlier, and they were both on NBC. And yet those were the two shows that really kicked the door open. So all this success, all this greatness, all this uh, acceptance in fandom, then the show gets canceled. What was the reaction? Well, they they were certainly very depressed. Um, Matter of fact, one of the horrible things about it is they knew they had a good show. They knew they had a popular show because what few ratings reports they got to see showed them that the show was doing okay. You know, but back then they didn't share the Nielsen reports every week with everybody. Uh, matter of fact, the report said at the bottom uh, that this is the property of AC Nielsen, not to be photocopied, not to be shared except with your clients. Uh, the whole point of the ratings reports that the networks would license, they didn't buy them, they would license them, and they had to return them to AC Nielsen when they were done, was to show it to their sponsors so they could get better money for the commercials. They look how good the show's doing. The last people they wanted to show it to was the stars and the producers of the television shows because what's going to happen? They'll ask for more money. <laughs> and that's why they now get, I mean, now a lead actor in a TV show is getting paid a million dollars a year. Shatner was getting paid $5,000 an episode, which would be like 50000 today. That's a far cry for a oh, million yeah. dollars. And yet that was good pay. I mean, about, uh, the top rate for a star was usually between four and $7,000. They got Shatner for five because they also gave him 5% ownership in the show. 
Uh, so that, you know, they've got to keep the prices down and you don't show the ratings. Well, eventually the ratings started getting published more frequently and started getting out. And that's when prices started accelerating. And because prices went up, we stopped getting 30 episodes a year and we started getting 24 and then 22 and then 19 because the episodes are costing more to make because everybody's getting, getting paid more. So, um, uh, they, they were working for very little money back then, but they, they didn't know how popular the show was, but they knew that they were getting more fan mail than any other show in television, including the monkeys, which was on at the same time. And you know how big the monkeys were in, in sure. 67 and 68 and Mr. Spock's getting more fan mail than Davy Jones. <laughs> which is why why Gene Roddenberry put uh, instant checkoff into the show because he said let's get somebody who looks like that English fella in in the monkeys and he was going to make him English and then he decided no let's make him Russian and if you look at a picture of Davy Jones and Walter Koenig from 1967 side by side they look like they could be brothers with wow. that hairdo that they got wow, that's, that, that's so a pretty they, neat they thought. were following that trend <laughs> well anyway to get to the point of your question so it was very frustrating for them to keep getting moved to worse time slots. They knew they were losing a lot of their audience because of that. So even if they're still NBC's top rated Friday night show, they got half as many people watching as when they were on Thursday night. Well, kids go to bed. Was it 10 o'clock on Fridays? You said that was the last year they put it in the death slot. Yeah. Kids kids go to bed at 10. It was very low. Yeah. Kids that last season. I got to believe a huge audience were young people and many of them were, you know, I think things were a little stricter back then. Many of them were told to be in bed by that time. I was, I was, uh, you know, I would sneak up and watch the show uh, when my parents were out. He, if he took my mother to dinner or something on a Friday night and went dancing, I'd be watching the show and I'd hear the, the station wagon pull into the driveway and I would turn off the TV and run and leap into bed. And I found out years later, my, my mother was laughing at me and she said, you know, we would come in and, my, and your dad would go over and fill the top of the TV set and be warm. And he knew you were watching that Star Trek show. You know, but it hey, was it on that off. terrible time slot. And the older kids, you know, what were they doing? You know, the, that was Star Trek's really big audience was college kids. And on a Friday night, well, they're at football games. They're at college and high school football games. And they're out on dates and prom nights and things like that. So it was the worst place to put this show. NBC at that point was trying to get rid of it, uh, trying to get drive it into the hole so that they could justify canceling it after getting a million protest letters the previous year. They were trying to alienate it from its audience because the subject matter was just too rich for them, and they didn't get along with Roddenberry. Too much headbutting sessions. They wanted Irwin Allen. They wanted to cancel Star Trek and get Irwin Allen to come over and do a show for them because he was doing shows for ABC and CBS, and he wasn't giving those networks any trouble. Whatever they asked, he gave it to them. Yeah, he did Time Tunnel, right? Am I am I right? Time Tunnel? Am I thinking correctly? Time Tunnel, Land of the Giants, Voyage to Bama Sea, and Lost in Space. And the thing about Irwin is he directed the pilots for each of those shows, and then he was the executive producer. And he had three shows running simultaneously, more than Quinn Martin had. And uh, But the thing about Irwin is you know, he wanted all of his shows very serious, and that's the tone of the pilots. But then they'd get on the networks, and the networks would say, let's make it lighter. For loss of space, you know, it's, we're getting too many letters from parents saying that their kids are having nightmares because of Doctor Smith is so evil and the robots trying to kill the children and all that. So you either got to get rid of that character or make him funnier, make him less threatening. And Irwin would say, "You're the you're the network. Whatever you want, I'll do it." He didn't like it, but he did it. 
uh, Voice on the Sea. Uh, I've written books about these shows as well because they predated Star Trek, and I wanted to see uh, what avenues uh, Irwin opened up for them, and I also had access to his show files and his private papers. And um, uh, ABC said every time Voice on the Sea has a monster on it, the ratings would spike. It was getting good numbers anyway. And they would spike when they did a monster story. So uh, Lou Hunter of ABC told me, and it's in the memos as well, he said, we told Irwin, why not do a monster every week? And so it became a Monster of the Week show. And Irwin got kicked for this a lot years later, especially by Star Trek fans. They said, well, his shows were silly. Well, he, he was on during the family hour with those shows, and he had to do what the network told him. Star Trek was on a little later. Uh, it started at 8.30 to 9.30 on Thursdays was its original time slot. So he could tackle subjects that were a little more adult. It's just NBC didn't want it to go as far as it was going. An early episode, I mean, Captain Kirk tries to rape his yeoman because he's been affected by a transporter malfunction. And he's got yeoman Rand, Grace Lee Whitney, pinned to the deck and is on top of her. And she has to scratch his face to get him off. And NBC blew a gasket over this episode. They, they didn't like it in the script. They were trying to get it to be softened in the script. Roddenberry assured them that it was not going to come off as a rape. It was going to just come off as he was being a little forward with her. Right. And then they see the filmed version and he's got her picked and pinned to the floor. And there's a great memo in, in uh, the first season book that I have. Um, there's a, se- a book for each season. Uh, there's a memo in there on that episode where NBC says, we will not rerun this episode. Don't ever do this to us again. And so that kind of set up the relationship between them, which only got worse. So the show is canceled. And this is where I think yeah. we come more into the, the, the part that, that goes into this newest uh, book that you did about the 70s. Right. So what was Roddenberry's frame of mind? I mean, a lot of people would say, well, I did this show and it's very unfortunate. I'm very sad. What's the next show? What was his frame of mind? Well, I'll I'll tell you how bad it was. Uh, They were supposed to do 26 episodes in the third season, uh, which was about average at that year. It had come down from 29 to 26 um, because of the costs and so forth. And they were shooting the 24th episode, Turnabout Intruder. And word came down that NBC was chopping off the last two. And one of those was going to be an episode William Shatner was actually going to direct. It was written by Theodore Sturgeon, a renowned science fiction writer, and so forth. So right in the middle of the 24th episode, they're told there is not going to be a 25th, 26th episode. So it's not just getting canceled. It's getting the rug pulled out from under you. And so the the mood was very somber uh, with that happening. And then everybody goes on. You try to just go back to your career. Shatner had been very successful before, and he's getting lots of offers to do guest spots. Uh, but they're all realizing now that they're typecast, that everybody would look at him and say, Captain Kirk, Captain Kirk. And people would look at Spock and say, or Nimoy and say, Mr. Spock. So it's now harder to get the roles you were getting before. Everybody thought James Doohan could only do Scottish accents. He didn't have a Scottish accent. He was from Canada. He made that up for the character. He thought, well, Scotsmen make good engineers. So he said, can I do this as a Scot? Gene Roddenberry said, sure. And it was flawless. So good that everybody after that assumed he was a Scotsman. He worked a lot before Star Trek because he was invisible. He was a great character actor. He was working every couple of weeks on, on some show as a guest player, making good money. And the minute Star Trek gets canceled, it's like, Suddenly the phone's not ringing because there's not that many roles for Scotsman. Same thing with Walter Koenig. You know, he, his parents were um, Russian immigrants. So he did pretty good with the Russian accent. 
And if anybody says he didn't, what, what the accent he was doing was his parents' accent, which were Russians who'd been transplanted to America. And so it was actually very authentic for that. And, uh, and he was working quite a bit for, before Star Trek in all kinds of different roles. And as soon as the show gets canceled, he's not getting hired because how many roles are there for a Russian? And, and that's how the industry was thinking. Oh, he's a Russian. We can't use him. <laughs> Suddenly he's not working. So it was very difficult for all of them. Um, for Roddenberry, especially what I found out in the new book, which covers the 1970s, uh, it covers the resurgence of Star Trek, the fact that it wouldn't go away. The ratings are so good and syndication is beating network competition. NBC's trying to get it back two years after they cancel it. Paramount won't give it back to them because they're afraid it may cause the bottom to fall out of the reruns. And they're on 200 stations across the country where NBC only has 180. And they're thinking, we're making a fortune here. Five nights a week on 200 stations. We're in 70 foreign countries. We're not going to put this back in production. So all the networks started coming to Gene and saying, give us something like Star Trek. So he did Genesis uh, 2 for CBS. He did uh, Quester Tapes for NBC. He did Planet Earth for ABC. Uh, and he was getting knocked a lot at that time because people would watch these pilots and say, well, he's kind of borrowing from himself. What I found out in doing my research with all these memos that are in there and communications with the networks and the studios is they were asking him to make it like Star Trek. Can't you make it more like Star Trek? You know, because, because everybody wants Star Trek back and we can't get it from Paramount. So let's give them something as close to it as we can. So that was his directive to do those things. The last pilot he was involved in was actually called Strange New World. Well, that's right out of the opening narration of Star Trek. To, to visit strange new worlds and go where no man has gone before. <laughs> and the network came up with that title, and Gene ended up taking his name off of that pilot because he didn't like all the interference and how they were meddling with it, and then the new title. And he said, I just can't do this anymore. And he walked away. The reason the animated show came on in 73 is because NBC was trying to get Star Trek back, and they couldn't get it. And so they finally said to Paramount, give it to us in any form that you will. If you won't give it to us as an hour long in prime time, how can we have it? And Paramount said, well, how about an animated show? And so there was the half-hour Star Trek uh, for Saturday mornings, which won an Emmy as best uh, children's show. And it was nothing children about it. It was They had the original writers. They had the entire cast doing the voices. The subject matters were very adult. And it was very good for its time. And then uh, the slow process of making the movie. It took five years. It was going to be a movie, a TV movie. Then it was going to be a series. Then it was going to be a big screen movie. Paramount couldn't make up their mind. And finally, they put it into production in late 77, and it came out in 79. So this book covers all the behind-the-scenes stuff that was happening while we, the fans, were saying, why aren't we getting more Star Trek? We knew it was a hit. Everybody we knew was watching it. Why aren't they giving us new ones? And this book answers all those questions. Yeah, that's fascinating. But it wasn't a case of not being wanted. Now, was it the case that, so does it, did Desilu own the, the, the show and then Desilu was sold to Paramount? Was that the chronology of well, it? Well, thank you for bringing that up. I, I think I started to go into that a moment ago or when we first started talking. Uh, Lucille Ball was the champion of Star Trek. She, she was looking for a show that could have the rerun possibilities of I Love Lucy. Uh, she and Desi owned the rerun rights to I Love Lucy. Uh, CBS didn't want them. Uh, they wanted to shoot the show on film <laughs> instead of video yeah. out of New York, like everything else was done. 
And and uh, Des and the CBS said, no, that's going to cost too much. And Desi said, we'll pay the difference if we can have the rerun rights. And CBS said, what's a rerun? There'd never been one. <laughs> and so they gave it to them, thinking, laughing, thinking, boy, those two are silly. They're yeah. going to pay to shoot this on film? How, how lucky are we? Crazy like a and, fox. Uh, yeah, and a few years later, CBS buys the rerun rights back from them for uh, over a million dollars. And uh, so Lucy and Desi, and back then that'd be like 10 million or more. And so Lucy and Desi went and bought RKO, which was doing badly and had gone bankrupt. They bought the entire studio and they opened up Desi Lou Productions and they started shooting all these TV shows for other producers, like uh, Andy Griffith Show, Dick Van Dyke Show, uh, Hogan's Heroes, you name it. And, um, and then, but they didn't own them. And oh. Desi had taught Lucy that, that the real secret of success is to own the show, not just make it, but own it. And so, uh, she, she was now running the studio and she was looking for a show that Desilu could own that had great rerun possibility. And she thought Star Trek was the one the board of directors tried to talk her out of making it. They said, this could cripple the studio. We are not a major studio. We're a TV studio. We cannot take on a show that's going to be this expensive. And she thought, no, 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 this is going to be big. And the pilot, first pilot was, as I said, extremely expensive. The second one was expensive. The board of directors kept trying to talk her out of making the show. And then NBC ordered 16 episodes, the first half of season one back then when that would be an entire season now, but it was the first half. And again, the board of directors said, don't do it. And she said, but we have an order. We saw it sold. The network wants it. And they said, don't do it. It'll kill the studio. Well, they were right. Halfway into the second season, Desilu went broke and she had to sell her beloved studio that she and her husband, the only thing she had left of her marriage, she had to sell it to Paramount Pictures, to Gulf Western Corporation, that had just bought Paramount Pictures. And she was just heartbroken. Uh, and so Paramount came in, took it over, and the first thing they did was cut the budget on Star Trek. Cut it way down, which is why the third season doesn't quite rank with the first two, because they didn't have any money. Bob Justman wrote a memo, and he said, we're trying to do half a science fiction movie every week on the budget of a radio show. Wow. It wasn't that bad, but that's how he felt. And and so it was it was hard getting that last year made. It was hard after the show ended. Now it's becoming this major hit. And Roddenberry owns 25%. Bill Shatner owns 5%. And Paramount, for the next 15 years, is telling them that the show's still in the red, even though it's on 200 yeah. stations across the country in 70 foreign markets. So that's that creative Hollywood bookkeeping. So it was a very tough period for them. That's what the new book shows. It's not a down book because it's, it's, it's really showing Star Trek becoming this legendary thing and growing and growing. And the space and so shuttle, the space shuttle. It's a positive theme, but it does show the difficulty that Gene Roddenberry was going through for sure. And the space shuttle program and then in their involvement in that. I mean, think about yeah. that. Uh, and I think maybe a lot of people forget this, that it was the prototype. And I remember I was a real little kid. I remember seeing it on TV. I was like five or six years old. But when they flew that first prototype of the space shuttle on uh, on an airliner, like a 747 or something, it was the Enterprise, right? Uh-huh. That's right. And they named the first space shuttle the enterprise and because now it's making sense to you <laughs> jim that we're talking about it yeah. because remember i told you nasa was big into it there's a picture in one of these books uh volume two season two uh for, that covers the second season there's a picture of all the nasa people in their control rooms as they're dealing with an apollo mission and every one of them is wearing a pair of spock ears 
You know, they did it as a, as a photo stunt. But these are this is it. everybody at NASA. They love this show. And so when the first space shuttle was going to go out, uh, President Ford named, christened it and named it Enterprise. And they had the entire cast out there, Gene Roddenberry. They all came out for the celebration, uh, imposing in front of the space shuttle as it was wheeled out. It was a big media event. Uh, because that, that's just how important this show was to the space organization, to scientists, to people who really believed that there's something out there. We need to be investigating. We need to be going out there. Star Trek really made it that come alive for so many people. Very, very cool indeed. Mark, if people want to pick up this edition, the latest one, these are the voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, or the previous editions and all the work you've done in this, where can they go? Where can they tune into everything and get everything? Well, Amazon, of course, always has everything, but I think we're all starting to feel Amazon's getting too big for their pants. So I would say <laughs> go get it from my publisher directly from the publisher, uh, which is Jacob's Brown Media Group, but that's too hard to remember. Uh, they've got a, a website. You can get to it just by typing in these are the voyages books dot com and it'll take you to the website and you can get the first three books which won a saturn award by the way <laughs> and they 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 document the making of the original series in detail like you've never seen with all these memos and everything you really find out everything that worked didn't work for all the episodes and so forth for them what they were fighting what they were up against how they felt as they were making them and the new book uh, which goes into the 1970s, which just came out. And if you get them direct from the publisher, they come signed. You can even get them inscribed. Uh, they send things over to me and have them inscribed before they go out and so forth. And so that would be these are the voyagesbooks.com. And one more thing, if I may, sure. um, they, uh, my publisher has just released an audiobook of my first volume. These are the voyages, Star Trek, the original series, season one. And it's 27 hours long because these are big books. It's 27 hours long. And it's not just an audio book. It's an audio play. It has over 80 people in it, close to 100. And uh, Vic Mignogna, who plays Captain Kirk in Star Trek Continues, is the primary reader. He reads all my words. But then we got other people to come in to read the other parts. So, of course, uh, Leonard Nimoy's gone, sadly. So we got his son, Adam Nimoy, who sounds a lot like him, oh, to come neat. in and do Leonard. We got Chris Doohan to come in and do his dad, Scotty, James Doohan. Uh, Rod Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry's son is in there. We have original participants from the show. D.C. Fontana, Dorothy Fontana, who was the story editor, wrote some of the best episodes. She's in there reading her memos from 1966 and 67 and so on. Uh, so it's got a, a really stellar cast. And it's like listening to an audio play that gives you the entire history of Star Trek. So if you're not into reading, there's a way to check out the season one book. I like reading, so I like, I'll like i get books all the time. But if you want to hear a long audio production, there's that as well. You can get that at my publisher's website. These are the voyagesbooks.com. Uh, well, just fantastic work. Great talking to you. And this is just a tiny bit of what's available in all these books. It's a little thimbleful. So please do check them out. Mark Cushman, thank you for joining us today on The Great TV Podcast. Thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure.
That was a lot of fun, and I actually re-recorded that a couple of months back, so I'm sorry it took so long to get up, but I really enjoy the great TV podcast, and if you want us to bring it back at some point, please let me know. Just happened upon this opportunity to interview Mark, and I love Star Trek, which I think came through the interview, so I thought we'd take him up on it. I, I might reconsider this show at some point, uh, starting it back up, but I need to know from you if that's something you'd really be interested in. We do have another interview in the can we did a while back. That one on Mary Tyler Moore. Look for that sometime this summer as well. So let me know what you think. You can go to greattvpodcast.com and get in touch. And we'll talk to you next time. Stay tuned, everybody. Bye-bye.